Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. We're busy with a, well, I'm busy with a series called Under Construction. It's just uh, what happened was when our hall in Rissefeld burned down, it just, the Lord just used that to make me realize that, that all of us are still under construction. All of us are still in the process of being built. You know, I also realized it's, it's really amazing having an under construction mindset. So easily, you know, when you expect everything to be perfect, nothing to go wrong, nothing to be messy, you know, you, you get flustered, you get upset, you get um, thrown by little things. But if you realize that you're under construction and everyone else around you is under construction and we as a community are under construction, when you have that sort of building site mentality, then uh, you can handle the messiness. You can handle the things that go wrong. Your, your, your mentality is much more robust, and your approach to life is much more robust. You walk around people um, with your hard hat on, spiritually speaking, <laughs> and you tell them to walk around you with your, your hard hat. You, you tell them, listen, I'm a construction site, you know. You've got to wear your hard hat around me, you know. There might be a few things falling around here and being built, and it might get a bit messy here because I'm still under construction. Um, but it's, it's a much more robust mentality to life, an approach to life. Um, and, and the reality is, um, until, until Jesus comes back, we'll be under construction, both individually and corporately, under construction. So uh, I'm, I'm be, I'll be sharing, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks and months from the book of Nehemiah. So those of you who have your Bibles, you can turn there with me if you want to. Uh, last week I shared about Nehemiah's deep concern that he had for the people of God and the city of God. And that deep concern drove him to two things, to prayer and to planning. Okay? Because he was concerned, he prayed. Uh, but he didn't only pray, he also planned. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's quite interesting, um, you know, whether we pray first or plan first often tells us what we trust in most. If I plan before I pray, it might mean that I have more confidence in myself than in God, and that I think I play a more important role in this construction project than God does. But if I pray first before I plan, like Nehemiah did, then it tells me my trust is more in God. I recognize that I have a role to play and that God uses me, but that God is the one that constructs. And that's what the New Testament tells us. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Okay? When we say we are under construction, it means we are the ones receiving the construction not primarily the ones doing the construction. Yes, we're involved. Jesus uses us to construct, but, but ultimately he's the one doing the constructing. Um, and that's Im- important to recognize. And I also think it's quite telling um, that... Let me, let me first read the scripture. Um, this is from verse 5 in Nehemiah 1. Um, and then I'll just say something more about prayer. Uh, it says, Then I, Nehemiah, said... Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, 
and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen for as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So I heard someone say once, um, there's many things you can do once you've prayed, but there's, very little, there's not much you can do until you've prayed. There are many things you can do once you've prayed, but there's not much you can do until you've prayed. And, you know, that is true because we, we really believe that God is not a God that's afar off, that's watching us from a distance. He's not a bet Midler God, you know. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. No, He's not watching us from a distance, right? He's not watching us from a distance. He gets up close and personal. He's intimately involved in our lives. Um, and that's why we pray. That's why we pray. Um, and it's interesting to me that the, the, the prominence of prayer in Nehemiah 1 is prayer actually dominates. It talks about he had this concern and then he wept and he fasted and he mourned and he prayed. And then he tells us for the rest of the chapter what the content of that prayer is. So his prayer dominates the first chapter. And in fact, it's so prominent in the first chapter and in the rest of the book that it tells us a lot about the place of prayer in God's construction project. In fact... Unless we have started praying constructive prayers to God, we have not yet properly got involved in His construction project. That's how important prayer is. Um, so the, one of the things that we need most and that we need most to do as a community that is under construction is pray to the one that is constructing us, to pray to God. So I'm just going to um, look at a few things. Nehemiah prays, firstly, to God, as, reveal, uh, as Scripture reveals him, about the problem, as Scripture reveals it, and for the solution, as Scripture reveals it. And um, what I want you to see is that what Nehemiah prays is saturated with Scripture. Everything he prays is saturated with Scripture. And that tells us a lot. That's, that really tells us a lot. And I'm going to show you, I'm gonna, I can't show you everything, you know, the Scriptures that he refers to, but... Uh, um, I want you to see some of it because I want you to see how important Scripture is in his prayer and how filled with Scripture his prayer really is. Because it tells us a lot. It tells us, firstly, that prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. It tells us that prayer is not just me speaking to God and venting to God and spilling my guts to God. <laughs> it includes those things, of course. <laughs> but prayer is also God speaking to me through his word and me responding to it. Right? Um, in other words, you know, that's why I put up that little picture there. You know, when, when you think of prayer, don't just think of yourself. You know, you, you know this is the, like the stereotypical posture of prayer, you know, us with, you know, with the folded hands and so on. Don't just think of the folded hands, but think of the folded hands above the Bible. Because that's what true prayer is. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is, and I think what God is trying to say to us through His Word, is that unless we know the Scriptures the way that Nehemiah knew the Scriptures, we, could, we cannot pray the way that Nehemiah prayed. 
Nehemiah prayed, I'm sure he prayed with his Bible, or at least the scroll of the Bible of the Old Testament opened beside him. And in fact, I think I can tell you which scroll, which book of the Bible he had opened, to him, uh, opened next to him while he was praying. It was the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I'm just going to read you a few verses from Deuteronomy 7, and I, th- I want you to try and see the connections between what we're reading here and what Nehemiah prayed. And I think it will be quite obvious. Um, it says in verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commandments. See exactly what Nehemiah was praying. Okay? comes almost verbatim out of Scripture. Verse 11 says, Therefore take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Who's the I there in Deuteronomy? Who's, who's doing the preaching in Deuteronomy? It's Moses. And, and in one of the verses, Nehemiah prays, and he says, We have not kept the, exactly the same three things. Commands, the, um, uh, what did he say? The, the, the commands, decrees, and laws that your servant Moses gave us comes directly from this verse. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. And then verse 19 says, You saw uh, with your own eyes the great trials, uh, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. And that's brought, when you brought you out of Egypt. And there's a reference to that when when, it's, when, when Nehemiah prays, they are your servants, your people, who you redeemed. What, what are the exact words? Your, uh, with, a, with your great strength and your mighty hand, which is his way of saying exactly the same thing. So he's referring there to the, to the Exodus. And then in verse 21 it says, um, The Lord your God who is among you is a, a great and awesome God. Exactly what Nehemiah prayed. There's another portion. I, I don't know if we're going to get it uh, to it tonight, but... Uh, in Deuteronomy 30, the first five or six verses, uh, which which also heavily, which Nehemiah is also heavily dependent on. So I want you to see clearly that that Nehemiah's prayer is solidly based in Scripture. It's explicitly and implicitly referencing Scripture the whole time. And if we want to pray effectively, we need to be as full as Nehemiah was of Scripture, so that when we pray. Just like in Nehemiah's prayer, Scripture comes out. We pray Scripture back to God. Okay, I mean, if I had to ask now, I mean, typically at the beginning of New Year's, we, we like making resolutions. We like saying, okay, well, this is what I want to do better. This is what I don't want to do more. I can guarantee if I ask, who of you want to pray more and pray more effectively this year? Probably every one of us will put up our hands. And one of the easy ways to do that is exactly this. Make sure that you spend time in God's word like Nehemiah did so that when you pray God's word comes out and first thing that Nehemiah does is he prays to God as God is revealed in scripture um, he, he says uh, Lord the God of heaven and the word there Lord in capital letters is um, the English translation of the Hebrew Yahweh now Yahweh means that, that's the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush the great I am, the one who is. It's, it's, it's related to the Hebrew verb to be. So he's the one who is and the one who causes all else to be. In other words, um, God is the only God, the only thing in existence who is self-existent. His existence is not derived from anything else. 
There's nothing that you can take away that will make him cease to exist. If, if God would take away oxygen, we would cease to exist very quickly. Okay? If God were to take away water, then in a couple of days we would cease to exist. In our, and, and, and there are literally thousands of things upon which our existence is dependent. There is absolutely nothing upon which God's existence is dependent. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't depend on anything. He's the reason for his own existence. And he's the only being in existence for which that is true. But not only is the one who is, but he's the one who causes all else to be. So everything else is dependent on God for its existence. Whether animate or inanimate. Whether it's a, a, a rock or a person. And he's the God, therefore, because he's the one who is, and who is everywhere, he's the God of heaven. He's not just the God of Israel. He is the God of Israel, but he's not only God in Israel. And that's why Nehemiah could sit in the Persian Empire under a Persian king in the capital uh, city of Susa and pray to Yahweh, the God of heaven, to do something all across the world where the, where the Israelites are scattered and specifically in Jerusalem where they're trying to rebuild the wall. And the only way we can have confidence, no matter where we are, is if we pray to this God, the one who is everywhere, who, who is and who can do everything, the one, the one who's the God of heaven, not just the God of Persia or the God of Babylon or the God of Egypt or even the God of Israel. He's the God of everything. He's the God of heaven. Okay, so praying to, um, uh, we must learn to, like Nehemiah, pray to, to God as Scripture reveals him, as, as Yahweh. Um, but Scripture also reveals him as the great and awesome God. And the word great there means great in extent. In other words, it, it doesn't say he's a great God or that he's great. It says he's the great God. Now it's... <laughs> he's the greatest in extent. There's no limit to his extent. He's so big. And, and if you look at, at Nehemiah's deep concern, I mean, Israel had big problems. They had a great need and a great problem, and therefore they needed a great God to meet that great need and, and solve that great problem. In other words, you, you need a God who is bigger than your problems. And there's only one God, only one God that is bigger than your problems, and that's the God of the Bible the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, okay? He's the only God that is bigger than your problems. And when you pray, when we pray, we must learn not to come with God, to God with our problems first and, uh, and foremost, but to come to God in praise and, and worship. So often we come with our problems and we basically come to God and tell him how big our problems is rather than going, you know, to our problems and telling them how big our God is. <laughs> but you see where Nehemiah starts. He says, Lord Yahweh God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He starts with worship. And it's amazing how praise and worship puts everything else in perspective. So that when you eventually get to your great problem, you've already worshipped your great God, so you can see your great problem in the context of your great God, and your great problem is not so great anymore. And all of a sudden, it's not so intimidating anymore. All of a sudden, it's not so overwhelming anymore. Because you're praying to God who is the great God. But he's not only the great God. because We like that. We like having a great God to solve our great problems and meet our great needs. That's beneficial to us. But it's not only the great God, it's also the awesome God. And the word there literally means terrifying. Scary. He's so holy, he is frightening, literally. I mean, the, 
that's what the original word, originally the word awesome means, or inspiring. Um, nowadays, we've, we call everything awesome, you know. My guitar is awesome, you know, and my car is awesome, and my iPhone is awesome, and my wife is awesome, you know. So, you know, but when you call everything awesome, nothing is really awesome anymore. <laughs> you know? But only God is really awesome. Okay, so we've, we've sort of watered down that word to the place where it hardly has meaning. But, but it, it really literally means terrifying, scary, big, so big that it's absolutely scary, so holy that it's absolutely frightening. And, and that we don't like so much. The great, God the great we like, but God the scary and the terrifying, not so much. God, God who, who solves our problems we like, but God who hates our sin, not so much. <laughs> right? And, and, and we're in the temptation to not pray to God as Scripture reveals Him to be, but as we would like Him to be. You know those stores where you could, that, those builder bear stores? Where you can go and, and sort of build your own, you know, put together all the different parts and, and build your own teddy bear. You, you know those stores that I'm talking about? Well, sometimes we pray to a builder bear God. We come to God and, and we sort of put all the different pieces together from Scripture that we like. We treat God like a buffet. You know, I'm going to take this, I'm not going to take that, I'm going to take this, I'm not going to take that, I'm going to eat this, I'm not going to eat that. But the problem is, if we pr- don't pray to God as Scripture reveals Him to be, everything that Scripture reveals Him to be, and only what Scripture reveals Him to be, then we're not really praying to the God of heaven. We're not really praying to the true God. In fact, we're, you know, if, if we only accept the parts of God that we like and reject the parts of God that we don't like, then we might not be serving the true God, but an idealized version of ourselves. An idol. Okay? And that's the first step. Nehemiah says, no, (laughs) I'm going to pray to God. You know, He's great and He's awesome. But I just want to remind you that, that both God's greatness and His awesomeness, we need it. We can easily understand that we need His greatness, but we also need His awesomeness because a God who doesn't hate your sin cannot save you from it. And if you think about the fact that, that every disappointment in your life, every heartache in your life, every um, suffering in your life, every rejection and breakdown in relationship in your life comes either from your sin or from the sin of the people around you or the people before you, then you want to be saved from that sin. You want a God who hates your sin more than you do. You need a God. We need a God who hates our sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Sorry, this is a long quote, but I think it's, it's quite helpful. He says, for the trouble, uh, because he's talking about, you know, if there's an absolute goodness, you know, in, 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 uh, God is, is absolutely good. He says, the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time but you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalt- is uh, uh, really and unalterably um, detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if he does exist, uh, sorry, if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. That is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, 
then we are making ourselves enemies of that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our, um, and so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it, and we cannot do with it. God is our only comfort. He's also the supreme terror. The thing we, need, uh, we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk uh, as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. What he's saying is, you know, if, if, if God is not the awesome, the scary, the terrible, the judge, the one who hates sin, and the one who comes down on it hard, then there's no hope for us. And, and I mean, South Africa is a case study of what happens when there's no judgment. Okay? Things go sort of downhill pretty quickly, you know? When there are no consequences for evil, then things get pretty bad. I don't know if you've been watching the, the what's the State Capture Commission and, and, and that guy from Basasa Grizi's testimony, but it's, it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary what happens, you know, when, when, when people who are corrupt start acting with impunity because there's no consequence to their corruption because everyone else, the people who are supposed to enforce the laws are themselves corrupt. And, and, and if you imagine that going on and getting worse and worse over years, think where we will be. The country would fall apart. There would be no hope for us. And that's exactly what C.S. Lewis is saying. But if God is very strict and very awesome and very scary and, very, and he judges very strictly, then there's also no hope for us because we're also on the wrong side of the law. Okay? So we're sort of in a fix. We're in a bind. Um, it's interesting that he also prays to God. He says, uh, you know, I just noticed this. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear. And I, I could understand, okay, your ears must be attentive to hear, but why must your eyes be open to hear? What, what's he saying, you know? Why must your eyes be open to hear? And, and, and of course, the only time when your, your ears and your eyes are closed not to hear is when you're asleep. So he's basically saying, God, don't, don't be asleep. <laughs> Wake up, you know. <laughs> oh, God, I know you're awake. I know you're not sleeping. You're not the God who sleeps. That's why I can pray to you day and night. Um, so, so the first step is to, to pray to God the way that Scripture reveals him to be. The, the second um, thing that Nehemiah does is he prays about the problem as Scripture diagnoses it or reveals it to be. Uh, and, and, and Scripture clearly reveals that the problem, the root problem, is sin. And, and in this prayer, he even defines sins very clearly. He says, we have failed to obey the, the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave in your word. Failure to obey God's word is at the heart of all sin. Okay? Now, we have God's word, and the reality is we try and obey it. We love God. We, we want to obey it, and, and, and to some extent we do obey it, but we don't always obey it. You know? Another thing that it tells us about sin is that sin is always against God. It says we've sinned against you. We have been, acted very wickedly towards you. So sin is always against God. In other words, sin is, not a, sin is not neutral towards God. Sin is against God. Sin is contrary to God. You know, and so often, um, you know, people say, you know, 
you know, ach, but, you know, you say this is a sin, but you know, we're consenting adults, you know, committing this sin, you know. It's it's not a it's a victimless sin. <laughs> now, all sin is against God. All sin uh, offends God, and sin is also exile from God. So, so what what happened with the Israelites is typical. What happens for us? God said, because of your sin, because you've sinned against me. You've created relational distance between you and me. And therefore, I have, in my judgment, in my awesomeness, but also in my grace, created physical distance between you and me by sending you into exile. Because I want you to see that the physical distance only represents the spiritual distance. In other words, physical exile and slavery only comes from spiritual exile and slavery. Um, Let me put it this way. Um, Our... Our God imposed, or a God imposed, physical exile is the response of a self-imposed spiritual exile. Because we have exiled ourselves from God. We have created distance between us and God. Um, and then there are physical consequences to that. And that's why the, if the problem is firstly spiritual, therefore the solution must also firstly be spiritual uh, through prayer. And the other thing is, sin is the ultimate problem. Every other problem grows out of sin. Every other problem is a symptom of sin. I heard someone say once that for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there is but one striking at its root. And so often we treat the symptoms, but we never get to the deep root that causes the problem. You know, we, we, we deal with the fact that there is tension between, say, individuals who need reconciliation, or groups that need reconciliation. But we never talk about the sins of selfishness and pride that cause those tensions. And and I'm talking generally, I'm not talking about us as the church. I'm talking generally about us as humanity. We so often deal with the symptoms which we find unpleasant, but the root problem goes unaddressed. In your prayers, are you hacking at the leaves of evil or are you striking at its root? Are you praying about all the symptoms that flow out of sin or are you attacking sin itself and dealing with it? So it's the ultimate problem. Um, every other human, every other religion in the world disagrees with that statement, that sin is the ultimate problem. And especially if it's in the context that sin is universal, that sin is a universal problem, that sin is everyone's problem. Every other religion or ideology says that some part of creation is the problem and another part of creation is the solution. I'm just going to give you one example. I gave this example this morning as well. A political example. Um, The EFF. They are a party. Their ideology is Marxism. Or communism. That's the ideology that, they, uh, that drives them, that they believe, the, the worldview that, that, that drives them. What is Marxism? What does Marxism say is the problem, and what does Marxism say is the solution? Marxism says the problem, it's an economic problem, and the problem is the rich, the capitalists. And in South Africa's case, the, the white monopoly cat- capitalists, okay? That's the problem. It's the people who are rich and who have the means of production and who are hogging and keeping the means of production uh, to themselves. That's the problem. In other words, some part of creation, 
Some part of humanity is the problem. What's the solution? The proletariat, the working class. They're the solution. And the solution is that the proletariat, the working class, who are disenfranchised and marginalized, must rise up in revolution and take over everything and everything. And the state, run by the proletariat, must then make sure that everything is equitable. But we've seen what happens in communist societies. The state doesn't equitably distribute the means. Um, I'm, I mean, we, we see our, our own state, how incapable it is of, of running things well. But what I want you to see is that ideology says that the rich, the bourgeoisie, are, are, are the problem, you know. The, re, the, the rich capitalists are the problem, and the working class is the, and the, and the government run by the working class is the solution. In other words, it demonizes some part of creation or humanity and idolizes another form, a part of creation or humanity. Every other religion in the world is like that. Think about Islam. Islam also says the problem are the infidels who don't believe in Muhammad and Allah and the solution is the, the faithful uh, rising up in jihad. One part of creation is the problem, another part of creation is the solution. And I can go through all the different religions and ideologies, it's all the same. Christianity is different. Christianity is the only religion that says that to some extent all of creation is the problem and only the creator is the solution. The creator who stands outside of creation, who created creation, he is the solution. So Christianity is the only religion that does not demonize some part of creation and idolize another part of creation. That doesn't see one part of creation or humanity as the problem and another part of creation or humanity as the solution. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't Christians who do, who, who do that. Certainly there are Christians who see you know, themselves as Christians as the solution and the world, you know, the, the pagans as the problem. But those are Christians who, don't, who are like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son don't really understand the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that we're much more wicked and evil than we ever dared imagine and yet much more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope let me put it to you this way sin is not just a universal problem it's a personal problem and nehemiah prays that and he says i pr i confess the sin that we israelites including myself and my father's house notice he doesn't say i confess the sins that them israelites have committed as though the problem is out there it's them they the problem the disobedient ones, the unfaithful ones. No, it, it says, we Israelites. I confess the sins that we Israelites. And then, just to reinforce his point, he says, including myself personally and my father's family have committed against you. I confess it. What is he saying? He's saying, they are the problem. Not just they are the problem, but we are the problem. I am the problem. I, I saw a, a letter that um, a very famous letter that G.K. Chesterton wrote to uh, um, a newspaper. The newspaper editors had sent out letters to famous um, writers and, and, and you know people and so on, journalists and so on, ask, asking a question and, and asking them to, to, to respond to this question. They said, what is the problem in the world? And here was G.K. Chesterton's answer. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You see, he got it. He got what Nehemiah got. The problem is not them. Now, I, I could 
probably improve slightly on G.K. Chesterton's answer. It would have been better for him to say, Dear sirs, we are yours sincerely. Because it wasn't only G.K. Chesterton himself that was a problem. It's us as humanity that was a problem. Let, let me put it a different way. I love, I love the way Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it. He's a, a famous um, Russian writer. And he says, The battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. The line between good and evil runs straight down the middle of every human heart. In other words, evil is not a problem out there. Evil is also a problem in here. It's not only a problem out there, it's also a problem in here. In other words, when we therefore pray about the problem, we must pray as though the problem, we must identify with the problem, we must identify with sin. And, and, and this is quite encouraging to me, <laughs> that God records in Scripture a prayer prayed by Nehemiah, in which Nehemiah confesses that he is guilty, as guilty as the people he prays for. You see, Nehemiah is a case study in good leadership. He's leading God's construction, part of God's construction. God's using him powerfully in his construction project. As God's people are under construction, Nehemiah is being used in that construction. And he's being, his prayers are being used powerfully. But in his very prayer that is being used so powerfully, he admits that he's part of the problem. In other words, this is, I think this is very encouraging. Even if you are part of the problem, you can be part of the solution. You don't have to wait until you're perfect before you become part of the solution. You don't have to wait until you're no longer part of the problem until you become part of the solution. You will always be part of the problem this side of eternity. But that doesn't seemingly, according to Nehemiah's prayer, disqualify you from being part of the solution. Now, some of you sitting here who are waiting until you are less sinful, more perfect, before you start <laughs> being part of the solution. You know, you know, other people can serve. You know, other people can, can, can minister. You know, I'm, I'm not good enough. Yes, you're not good enough, but neither are they. <laughs> neither was Nehemiah. He says so himself. Don't wait. Stop waiting. You don't have to be sinless before God can use you. So um, what is the solution to that sin? Confessing, like, like Nehemiah did. Confessing that sin. I confess the sins that we Israelites have committed against you, including myself and my father have, have committed against you. Returning to the Lord. And we must break our self-imposed spiritual exile before God can break our physical exile. We must return to God in our hearts before we can return to the land and re return to, um, to God. But, but yes, yes, the problem goes deeper than just um, you know, it's not as simple as just sort of sweeping sin under the rug. Uh, the situation here, the, the, the Israelites' exile because of their sin is one thing, but, but bear in mind that they weren't just exiled because of their sin, but their city was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed. Remember that place in, at the end of the prayer where he says, um, I will bring them back to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. What was the place he has chosen as a dwelling for his name? Jerusalem and the temple. In other words, the place, the only legitimate place where atonement for sin could be made. You weren't allowed, according to Deuteronomy itself, which 
Nehemiah quotes from, you weren't allowed to make sacrifices to atone for sin, blood sacrifice, anywhere except the temple. But now that temple has been destroyed. Oops, what now? It, it reveals to us that our problem is deeper than just we make mistakes and God forgives us. Because God cannot just forgive. He has to make atonement. Blood has to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no atonement for sin. Blood has to be shed for atonement to happen. But even when, when animals are sacrificed, the atonement and, and the forgiveness, it, the atonement is temporary. And the place where that atonement happens, the temple can be destroyed. So what we need is an indestructible temple and a lasting sacrifice. Can you see now where this is going? And then he brings us back to the place he has chosen as a dwelling place for his name. You see, the temple was destroyed. It was eventually rebuilt. But the ultimate place that became a dwelling place for his name, the, the ultimate place where he chose to place his name on, only came much later when Jesus came. And Jesus means Yahweh, the Lord, the one that is and the one who causes all else to be, the very Yahweh that Nehemiah prays to. Yahweh is salvation. And God put his name upon Jesus in a very special way. Why? Well, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will build it up. Why could the temple which Nehemiah and Ezra and the guys went to rebuild, why could, it be, why, could, why could Nebuchadnezzar destroy it in the first place? I'll tell you why. Because God hadn't built it. They had built it. Anything that man builds, man can destroy. But whatever God builds, man can never destroy. And that's why Jesus says, destroy this temple and I... Not you, not man. I, God, will build it up in three days. And once that temple had been built up again in three days, it became an indestructible temple. A resurrected temple, because he was talking about the temple of his body. A resurrected temple, which was an indestructible temple, which would never be destroyed again like the temple was in the time of Nehemiah. But not only that, not only did he become the indestructible temple, but he became the lasting sacrifice. Remember what John the Baptist said just a, a chapter before that? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate Passover Lamb. And, and more than that, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tension here in the text between, between the, 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 the conditional nature of the covenant... God keeps his covenant of love with those who lo towards those who love him and keep his commandments. So his covenant of love is dependent, conditional on our love for him and our obedience to him. And, and if, if that is the only reality in the covenant, we are in trouble because we never consistently fulfill the conditions. But at the end of the prayer, he says this, and this is good. He says, Lord, they are your servants, your people whom you redeemed with a mighty hand, with mighty strength and, a, and, a, and an outstretched arm. Referring to the Exodus. God redeemed. And the word they redeemed literally means purchased with a price. Okay? 
What, what was the price they were purchased with? Well, the price that the Egyptians paid was the death of the firstborn. And they substituted with the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, which they painted on the doorposts. But even after that, the Israelites, every firstborn son, every firstborn even of the animals, had to be dedicated to the Lord. Because God was wanting to tell us that the one who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, would actually be his firstborn, which he gives in place for our firstborn. The, one, the firstborn in, in ancient culture was the one who represented the family, who could stand on behalf of the family, who could die on behalf of the family. And God sent his firstborn. Now, here's what I want you to see. Remember I mentioned the conditional nature? God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Conditional, problem. But when God saved Israel, when he saved Israel, when he redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from slavery in Egypt, was that conditional? Did he say, here is my law. If you obey this law, I will save you from slavery in Egypt. No, it happened the other way around, right? First he saved them from slavery in Egypt, and then a couple of months later on Pentecost, he gave them at Mount Sinai, he gave them the law. So the salvation was unconditional. And now what Nehemiah is praying is he says, God, go back to the unconditional part of the covenant. We'll always need the unconditional part of the covenant because we can never fulfill the conditional part of the covenant. In fact, there's only one who can fulfill the conditional part of the covenant. There's only one who ever has fulfilled the conditional part of the covenant, and that was Jesus, the ransom, the Lamb of God, the lasting sacrifice, the indestructible temple. And... The one, ultimately, who says, I will build my church. I'll build my temple. I'll build my city. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, I, I, I find this so beautiful that Nehemiah came from a faraway foreign land per, in Persia all the way to Jerusalem to come and rebuild it. Jesus came much further. He came all the way from heaven to earth to come and rebuild us. Nehemiah and the Israelites were under just exile in Babylon and then in Persia because they had sinned against God. Jesus ended up as the only innocent exile. He was, he was crucified outside the gates as a, as a reject, as an exile. They were under exile because they were disobedient. He experienced exile because he was obedient so that those who were disobedient can come back from exile, could be gathered again. And, and that is the basis. Nehemiah's prayer is the basis upon which the restoration of the people of God happens. That's the basis upon which God, God, God's uh, construction project is built. That's the basis, the confidence that we can have that we are under construction and the one who started our construction will complete it. And not only will he start it and complete it, but he will use us in it. Even though, like Nehemiah, we are imperfect us and our father's house have sinned against him too. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. He can still use us. Do you realize that? That because of what God did in Jesus Christ, even though you are imperfect, he can use you. Just like he used Nehemiah to rebuild his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because the reality is you never came to God based on your own merit. You always came to God based on His merit, on Jesus' merit. God never used you because you deserve to be used. 
He always used you in spite of the fact that you didn't. He's using me because, in spite of the fact that I don't deserve to be used. So let us be under construction. Let us be active participants in this construction project, this rebuilding project of the people of God with a confidence that God uses people just like Nehemiah, just like us. People who are part of the problem, he makes part of the solution. Amen. Let's stand. I just sense that the, the Holy Spirit is saying that, I mean, we, we read Nehemiah praying through to, to God as revealed in Scripture, praying about the problem as revealed in Scripture, praying for a solution as revealed in Scripture. And part of that solution is he says, God, give me success and favor in the sight of this man, the king, that he will send me back. Now, was he saying, choose me, Lord. Pick me, Lord. I volunteer, Lord. I want to be part of the solution. And, and I just sense that the Holy Spirit is saying that, that some of us, are hesitant to put up our hands like Nehemiah did because we don't understand what Nehemiah understood. When in actual fact, we should understand it so much better because we can look back. What Nehemiah saw, you know, through a glass darkly, you know, vaguely, unclear in the future in terms of the coming of the Messiah, in, in, in terms of an indestructible temple and a lasting sacrifice, we see so clearly in hindsight in the life of Jesus through the Gospels and through the New Testament. We should have more confidence than Nehemiah. We should have more confidence than him. We should be more, um, more quick than him to put up our hands and say, Lord, send me. Give me success. Give me favor where I'm working now in the world so that you can use me more in the kingdom. And, and, and I, I just sense the Holy Spirit saying some of us are hesitant and we're holding back a bit. We're uncertain because we don't think we're good enough. And that's only because we don't yet understand the gospel enough. Because if we did, it would give us the confidence we need to boldly step out and say, here am I, send me. So I just want you to close your eyes. If you relate to that in any way, if there's any hesitation in your heart to put up your hand and say, here I am, send me. I just want you to close your eyes and just bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, I just bring this to you, this hesitance, this, this hesitation to you. Remove it in Jesus' name. Remove it in Jesus' name. that when you've just repented of all hesitation and, and holding back and fear I want you to ask God for favor and success where you're working so that you can use that favor and success in the world to advance the kingdom to build God's people and to build God's city just in your own words just ask him for that Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. 
May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.